I've been working pretty much exclusively in the individual health field for about seven years now. As a writer, as a teacher, as a consultant, as a coach, my focus is how to help individuals become as healthy as possible by changing their actions, their habits, their diets, their exercise routines, their thinking, and all that. And in the last few months, I've really started challenging the notion that this is something that we can accomplish by ourselves as individuals. And that goes beyond the idea of, yes, you need a community and you need support and you want to have, you know, an infrastructure around you that can support your good behaviors. I think I mean something deeper that looking at it as self-help, as self-care, separate from our connection to nature, our connection to the universe, our connection to each other. It's like trying to get individual cells in the body, like the cells in my right little finger to be healthy when maybe there's a cancer somewhere else, right? So that it's impossible to do this unless we are also looking at the collective and as a collective. And if you listen to my recent uh, conversation with Tyson Yunkaporta, you'll see where the aboriginal, the indigenous mind doesn't see us as separate at all, that sees us as, as parts, as in relation to all there is. And today's guest, Tata Hazumi, um, has another take on the same topic, looking at trauma not as an individual thing, not as something that happens to a person, but also as something that happens within cultures. The idea that there are cultural traumas that occur both from oppressed groups and oppressor groups that can keep us stuck, that can keep us in pain, that can keep us recreating cycles of trauma on future generations. And this is a very challenging conversation because there's a lot that I don't get. And in conversations like this, it's not just that I'm not understanding the answer, it's that I feel like I'm not even clear enough to ask the right questions. So there's a lot of false starts here. There's a lot of areas in which we have to backtrack. Um, it doesn't flow very linearly in the way that I generally like my interviews to flow. And I'm going to put it up there because I need to hear it again. And I think there is tremendous potential for healing in this conversation, even if you can hear me struggling through a lot of it. So without further ado, Tada Huzumi, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Hi, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, as we were, we were just chatting before I hit record, um, you have done a lot of writing that I have found incredibly helpful, and a lot of it has been very challenging. And so, okay, that's interesting. So, like, this podcast is basically the theme is basically people I want to have conversations with um, to help me get my head out of my ass. And so that's 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 what I'm going for here. So first, can you just introduce yourself? Just maybe create some context for the for the conversation. Yeah. So um, my name is Tada Hazumi. I'm a you know, I'm a, what people call a hyphenate Canadian, so Japanese Canadian. Um, I'm kind of like a in between, the first like landed in and yeah, first generation and zero generation kind of float in between during my identity. Um, yeah, I live and work on uh, what's commonly referred to as unceded coastal territory, so that's. Also known as Vancouver, uh, BC, and uh, yeah, happy to, join, happy to join everybody here. I'm a somatics practitioner and also 
within that, I would say I'm a practitioner of something that I refer to as um, uh, cultural somatics, and maybe we're probably going to get to talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, I hope yeah. So. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Let's let's start with just with somatics. So, like, what sure. what does what, what does that mean? Yeah, on a, on a baseline level, that just means uh, of the body. So, you know, all the practices that are kind of based in. Uh, uh, mindfulness and other, you know, other disciplines would be kind of just like a part of that. Actually, Howard, I was going to ask, is, do you hear like a residual noise on my end? I don't. Because I can actually close my window to reduce. Oh, I'm, I'm when no, when you're not talking, I hear nothing. So it's a very, it's a very clean signal from my end. Okay. Great. Okay. That's all I need to know. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So somatics just means of the body. And then, uh, um, so a lot of that work you might, you know, know as like things like Hakomi method or Feldenkrais or somatic experiencing and modalities like that. Um, I guess technically yoga and, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. mindfulness will fall into somatics as well. Um, so that's kind of like the terrain I walk in and, and, Specifically around that, yeah, cultural somatics is a kind of what you might call, you know, quote unquote, a new offshoot or movement or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> new, new, you know, new, new developments within that field. Um, so the way you might describe that is the somatics is really um, working with individuals. Uh, cultural somatics is about seeing groups of people, so collectives as bodies, and working with that as bodies. So that's cultural somatics. So you might, if people are familiar with like social permaculture, I think it's very similar to that idea. So um, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with social permaculture, and I, oh, and I have yeah. a I have a PDC degree. So oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So I guess social permaculture is the idea of working with society using the using working with groups of people using the kind of principles of permaculture. And so, very similarly, like, you can work with groups of people um, using the principles of somatics, and we might call that cultural somatics. Yeah. Okay. And just um, to dive a little bit farther into somatics straight before we, um, um, you know, branch out. So this is, like, what sorts of things uh, happen when people engage in somatics? Like, what's the, what, are the, what are some of the goals? Like, why, why do we do oh, these right. things? Well, yeah, I think one is like integration of, um, so, you know, a lot of like Western psychotherapy has traditionally kind of been like top down. So, um, you know, mind over matter, if that makes sense. A lot of, um, you know, what we call psychoanalysis and, you know, CBT and stuff like is that kind of that strain. So it's a top down approach to our healing and change process. Whereas somatics, you're working with kind of a bottom up. So, you know, when you have, subtle changes in the body um you're experiencing like yeah shifts within like you might not even be able to name them you know what i mean you might have these subtle processes in the body and that actually changes how you interact with the world if that makes sense so you know um like for example like i guess like in japanese somatics in particular we work a lot with like this idea of how your posture informs how you see the world Mm. so if let's say you're um uh, your body's weight is going into uh, the back of your body versus the front of your body, you're going to be activating a different part of your brain, and then your perception of the world changes because of that, right? If that makes sense, uh, like you might have more um, back brain action versus, uh, let's say, frontal lobe. Uh, 
mm. or the qualities of that might change or um if your chest is caved in you might relate to the world in a different way or if your pelvis is tucked away in, in fear you know like you're gonna have or there's a lot of rigidity around your pelvis you're gonna interact with the world as a lot of a, mm. kind of like a shame kind mm. of based so, kind of perspective. So, so these postures they might be locked into your body for whatever reason, whether it was a past trauma or an accident or habituation, um, that they they actually inform our thinking. And so, if I'm going to do CBT, it's going to you know cognitive behavioral. If I'm just attacking the thinking and saying, "Well, man, you're thinking about this wrong. You have a dysfunctional thought," but the, if the thought arises from the mm-hmm. posture itself. Then that's going to be a fruitless effort if we if we don't get at the source. Is that sort of an yeah? That's that, that's a part of it. And also, like sometimes when we change the thought, we have an embodied shift. You know, mm. so when we hear something that makes sense for us, our body shifts to accept that or not accept that. You know what I mean? Um, so, um, like even when you whatever you call CBT, it's still a somatic process underneath it all. Mm. But the orientation is different in the sense that. Um, you know, the, the vagus nerve which runs up and down your spine that connects kind of your entire nervous system to your brain. Like 80% of the information goes upwards. You know what I mean? But we tend to think it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. So, you know, information is going up, but it's not like 20% is coming down. There's a lot that happens independently of the mind or the mind brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's an important thing, yeah. Right. Okay, so somatics, rather than trying to replace CBT, is just saying if 80% of the information is afferent, then maybe we should pay attention to the source of that and, and yeah, acknowledge yeah, it directly. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to, I've never done CBT and I've never seen a CBT therapist, so I can't really say on that. But, um, you know, I think it's just pretty obvious that, like, our entire society is run off this idea that information mostly travels downward, right? If you look at how our social structures are created and everything, you, it's it's embodied everywhere, right? Right. So, you know, um, it's a lot of it's about shifting the ratio. You know what I mean? It's about institutionalism and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, just, that's the cultural side. Of this to give an example, um, a, a business partner of mine was in a car accident and got trapped in the, behind the steering wheel, wouldn't open, engine block burst into flames. And after that, he uh-huh. developed, um, you know, PTSD around, around um, you know, claustrophobia, couldn't be in a movie theater. And his right. the cognitive attempts to get him to heal were, you're, you're safe here. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah and yeah. and what, what the effect that had, given that his nervous system was telling him that he was about to die when he sat down in the movie theater and the lights went out, was to actually make him crazier. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. I now that I know that my thinking is faulty, why can't I stop thinking it? It was only when right. he began doing like somatic experiencing the Peter Levine work. Right. Yeah, did yeah. he have ac- Did did he have access to? to something that was more compassionate than your thoughts are wrong, so fix them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. And it's just that, like, you know, a lot, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in our body that's a lot more stubborn than you're thinking the wrong way, you know, and that's probably 90% of it. <laughs> so it runs into problems eventually, you know. You know, after you clear the first 10%, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and I'm I'm so much better at lying with my words than than with my physicality. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hundred mm-hmm. percent. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like, I remember when I first started doing a body-based therapy, one of the things I warned my therapist about is like, I'm I'm really clever. I will I will try to fool you. Like, mm-hmm, and she's like, mm-hmm. don't worry, sweetie. Oh, really? That's funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I'm not really listening to to your bullshit words anyway. Right, right, yeah, tracking your affect and stuff, yeah. Yeah. and inflection, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got, so I think I, I sort of have a sense of what you mean by somatics, and I hope that the listeners kind of have a general sense of sort of working with the body for right. healing, for actualization, for, um, you know, getting what we, having the experiences we want out of life and, and acting mm-hmm. in accord with our with our values and priorities. Mm-hmm. Now you add another level of of cultural somatics. So does does that have to do with like all of us have bodies that have been shaped by our experiences and mm-hmm. somatics typically looks at it as an individual. Like you grew up yeah. here, your dad yeah. hit you when you were twelve, you got yelled at crossing the street when you were four. And these are all like patterns and cultural says that there's 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 bigger things that might be invisible to someone who's just looking at an individual. Yeah, like I think that that's one thing. That's like um so for a while we've been talking a little bit about you know when first especially like in the you know white western psychotherapeutic world they're looking at trauma as an individual kind of experience and then they maybe enlarge that to family. Mm. But where you know it's been slower um and you know for obvious reasons is to look at the cultural effects of like cultural as a you know a producer of uh, complex trauma for us, so that's like complex trauma is the kind of trauma that when you have like uh, constant exposure to something, you know, as opposed to like a car accident, which is an acute incident. Most of the trauma that we have is actually complex. It's not. It's not. It's not the acute time. You know, it's like kind of like being around a neglectful parent for ten years. <laughs> this is a lot more what we have, right? So cultural trauma is like all that stuff, like the kind of like what happens when we are. You know, used to living in a culture that's shitty for us, basically. Um, so that conversation had been going on, I think, for, you know, for a bit, like, and that's, main, that's been a big critique that especially, like, you know, um, people of color had when they're working in the, you know, Western, you know, therapeutic institution because they're like, well, like, our lives need to take into more consideration than just family and individual trauma experiences right there's a cultural layer to racism and and, you know uh things like that um you know as well as like misogyny and you know so essentially yeah there's like a lot more marginalized people who are doing healing work and that's actually the majority of us because you know it's probably rare it's actually like men are actually quite rare in our field right and especially in the body-based work it's actually mostly women who you know women and femmes and people who are essentially not cis men doing the work um at least my colleagues are mostly you know not men and mm-hmm. not cis men at least and so so you know and then yeah so that's kind of like been the conversation but um cultural somatics for me uh, you know in the particular way i approach it is like is a little bit more than that. There's like a, a layer of, um, so yes, there's like, you could like if, if this, if these systemic oppressions and stuff cause our bodies to experience trauma, cultural somatic starts to go towards like, okay, well actually as collections of individuals, we are one body, right? 
Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we are one body and that body has trauma. And that looks a little bit, that's a little bit different to say that individuals experience this cultural trauma. That's also true. But then there's this another layer of like, no, the, like our entire culture and society has a body, has a networked body and, and, um, it experiences trauma. And a lot, you know, and we see the results of that trauma. Like, for example, like, um, and there was that young white guy who, uh, you know, who shot a bunch of protesters, right? Like yeah. Bring, bringing guns to a rally and, and shooting people. That's, that's like a, we tend to think of that as an individual or even kind of like social experience. That's like, I, I think it's actually a lot more than that. There is actually a, a cultural body that has pain in it and has a very certain ways of expressing it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit, it's kind of like, yeah, it's a little bit cybernetics. You know what I mean? That's kind of the flavor, you know? Um, I, I was, right. Yeah. Well, let, let, let me let me poke at it, see if I can um, sure. un- understand it. So, when you say that cultures can have tr- trauma, mm-hmm. are you talking um, about, let's say, how how you would be treated by the broader culture, so as sort of as as an other, or are you talking about like the trauma that I would get from growing up in a culture? Like, I, I grew up in a in, in a Jewish culture. That was right. very Holocaust aware because my mother had escaped. Yes. Right. So right. there I, I felt the effects of like being Jewish. Like I, it wasn't like anti-Semitism affected me. It was my parents and grandparents affected me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the intergenerational trauma piece, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And so like the um, – and, and, you know, and just to say that cultural somatics is not like something – that I exclusively do or anything like that. There's a whole bunch of people, you know, other people like you might know are like Resma Menachem. You know, he's a black somatic, uh, somatic therapist and uh-huh. he's done a fair amount of writing and, uh, speaking on the subject, but it's specifically more about my approach to it is that like, um, but yeah, his book's called My Grandmother's Hands. It's been quite popular in the last little while for the obvious reasons, but, um, hmm. um, yeah, so, yeah, so just to say cultural somatics isn't something, like, only I represent or, you know what I mean? Right. But, um, what I would say is that, like, so yes, so you, like, so there's that intergenerational, and that's one layer, right? That's, so that's bigger than just Howard layer, right? You know, you're getting into the intergenerational, oh, I have trauma not just from anti-Semitism, from being Jewish, like, inheriting your family's lineage of all the anti-Semitic stuff they experience, which is you know, anti-Semitism plus something else, right? Mm. And, I, and I guess, like, what I'm saying is there's also something else beyond that as well. And that is to say that there is actually a body of body of all the Jewish people that have been alive up till now mm-hmm. and are still alive. That is actually also one body. So it's kind of like the way you might experience that is like uh, what Jung called the uh, collective unconscious, uh-huh. right? Imagine the collective unconscious actually has a body and a nervous system. That's what cultural somatics works with. Okay. Which Does is, that make sense? Yeah, which is to say yeah. that I can reject it all I want, but I'm still part of that body. Yeah, yeah. Like, you you know, and you see this experience. Um, it leaks into it, those images and 
things ex- leak into our experience, right? Like, so this is kind of a bit dark, but like, um, so, you know, I think folks know Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. So Ted, but Ted is a very interesting character, actually, like this, because when you ask him about the, his motivations for, you know, for his slaying of women and stuff, he used to say, he said, um, I get images in my head. And so he really externalizes the stimulus. He's like, this, this is coming in and, and it's become this obsession, but it's external to me, this invade, these invasive images of, of women. And, uh, something that people don't discuss in the context of discussing Ted Bundy's behavior is that what, what were Western governments doing about a hundred years ago en masse? Is like torture of women in the middle of their squares. So, right, so really like Ted's behavior is just individualized version of what was actually institutional behavior only 100, 200, 300 years ago and went on for like 400 years, right? Four or 500 years. You're talking about like witch, witch trials? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you see that like in the collective unconscious is actually quite powerful. What's leaking into Ted's experience? Do you see what I'm saying? And that's not intergenerational just for him. You know what I mean? That's not. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's a lot more than intergenerational. There's something that he's accessing that's like mm-hmm. a much wider field than that. Well, I mean, what yeah. what that does, that makes me very either or both humble and uncomfortable because mm-hmm. I'm part of that same body. And it's sort of like there, but for the grace of something go like I I have all that in me, too. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it works a little bit like some people are, you know, like you know, you probably know this, like, um, one part of our body can be seemingly healthy and another part may not be and corroding, right? All mm-hmm. at the same time. And it takes a while for us to really recognize the corroded parts often, right? We're like, oh, I got a shoulder pain once in a while, but they don't, people don't realize it's inflammation in the liver. And that means you're having gut dysbiosis, but they're dissociated. So they don't realize till like 40 years in and they're like, oh, why am I developing this autoimmune condition? But they don't realize it's connected to their shoulder pain from like, 30 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. It's very similar to that. Yeah, so, and because we have a way of tend, uh, thinking about ourselves as individuals. So, yeah, exactly. Like, for, you know, for some grace that you're like, oh, I'm mostly okay here. Like, I don't have that kind of instinct. Mm-hmm. Or, um, but that doesn't mean other parts of the cultural soma don't. Mm-hmm. If that so, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. so, so I'm, still, I'm trying to sort of parse something that I'm... Let's say, like, like, there's my culture... That, like all the the stuff that we're doing and all that, and then there's how I, as a member of that culture, am perceived by the wider world. Like I'm thinking about some mm-hmm. of the work of uh, Ibram Kendi, where he okay. he argues that anytime there's two groups that there's a difference in outcome in two groups, it's because the the the, the group with the better outcome is oppressing the group with the worse out with the lesser outcome. So, mm. <laughs> I guess I, I don't I don't know how to agree or disagree with that. Right. Well, you know, so the, the, the other argument is that well, you know, let's say there's you know he's arguing against a narrative of the black community that that well there's a culture that wherever it came from of less than, um, you know, less achievement or that, like hopelessness right. or, right. um, and so like how how do you think about whether whatever I'm experiencing comes from like in inside my culture or whether it's because of the way I'm oppressed by uh, the wider culture. 
Does that question even make sense, or do you want to reframe it completely? Or? No, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, uh, like, I, I, I really, have, I really struggle, honestly. It's like. Yeah, <laughs> I struggle. <laughs> so if my, when, it, so when if it's my, not given a neurological frame, yeah. I struggle a little bit. Yeah, so if my question I, doesn't make sense, do you, do you have a sense of where, what I'm missing or where I'm confused? Oh, I mean, I don't I don't I got to tell you where you're confused because I think you're probably pretty certain about what you're saying. I just I'm just having a yeah. trouble putting my I get a bit uh -huh. dyslexic with uh -huh. ideas too and like flipping my head like what did you mean by the mm, uh Okay. What I like, it's more like I it sounds a bit like uh, what's being said is like the results of an in-group are a lot of the times the effects of the relationship with an out-group. Uh, let, let, yeah, let me try. Yeah, so let's, let's, <laughs> Maybe that failed. Um, well, let me, let me see if I, because I'm not even sure. All right, so let me try something. Um, so if we talk about like white Protestant patriarchal culture in America, like mm -hmm. nobody's oppressed them. <laughs> And yeah, that's that's not true. But yeah, sure. No, it's not. No, it's totally not true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That, beautiful. That, beautiful. That, that, yeah. so, <laughs> but I understand what, what what you mean, though. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So, like, you wrote a really powerful piece. I think you know it went pretty viral about like white people can't dance. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that, and, and white, it wasn't. You weren't saying that the pro, the, the the struggles that white people have to dance, which you by which you mean a whole bunch of things. Yeah, it's, um, not, a, it's not because black people or brown people or anyone is oppressing them. It's something that has become interjected into white culture. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, you're, but you're saying that that comes from trauma? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so help 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 me follow that back. Where does where does that trauma come from? Okay, well, okay. So let's see. You know, like I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little uh, uh, flipping the attention. So invite us to like maybe do a bit of grounding as we talked about. Beautiful. So inviting you to take a gentle breath in, just natural breath, right? Oh, yeah, and if you're driving, don't do this. I hope you realize that. <laughs> um, and then dropping your breath lower into your body very gently. So you're kind of letting gravity breathe for you. And we're in a very nonverbal way now. Like you're not going to use words or even... Maybe even images, just very like, intuitively connecting to the land that you're on. And just notice there's some kind of two-way communication there. That's you can't you know you're a lot of loss for words. And if you don't believe in this stuff, you can just imagine that it's happening. That's okay. That's mm -hmm. fine. I don't, it doesn't really matter. The point is, if it, what it does for your nervous system is the is the key thing. If you notice. You're becoming calmer, more gentle, more subtle. You know, that's something. So results are everything. Okay.
All right, and you're probably starting to notice some physiological change. Heart rate, blood flow, you're probably recovering some sensation in your lower body and stuff. <sighs> hmm. Thank you. Hmm. So this is a grand story. Um, where might we start this grand story? Mm. Uh, well, so mm. so uh, um, I mean, one of the things I have been struggling with is the concept of white fragility, which I think you have. Um, Actually, you know what? I'm going to interrupt that. I'm going to good, interrupt. That. Good, good. So, Take, like, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I feel like we're gonna, we're going in a different. <laughs> I'm going in a different direction. Okay, good. I'll follow but you. But it might answer everything. You know what I mean? Um. So, you know, if people are familiar with every land that humans have been on, there's usually a kind of a gods or spirits associated with that land. Does that? Mm-hmm. Does that? Does that? Copy to. I wonder if that copies copies to people. Um, gods that are very specific to the place. Very specific to place, you know what I mean? And so you can consider that like, um, spiritually, it's like, uh, the local mom and pop store, right? So the, the spirits and gods that are recognized have an impact, but only really on the community that they're, uh, that they're a part of immediately, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, so from there, there's been a, a transition to, let's say, a Starbucks coming in, right? Like spiritually. So you have like a god from another place come into another place, right? And often that's going to take the shape of like a sun god or a sky god or some, like a little bit. So, you know, when you think about it this way, like when you start getting into sky and stuff, mm-hmm. you start to get into universality. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. there's a horizon. You're, because you're, you're going to lose your God if you walk out too far out of your territory. God's gone. Mm-hmm. Right. God, you're connected to the sky. All fucking everywhere. So you get to keep get to keep going. Or the right. sun, you get to keep going, right? So it's kind of interesting to think about, right? Um, and where are you anchored? So that that's like kind of like you're starting to move into a more franchise model, Right. And uh, a lot of what is called uh, imperial expansion is just that, right? Um, so this this movement towards this this kind of like juxtaposition, I think, is really important to understand. That, like, you know, in the history of people that we call, um, you know, wasp or you know, Anglo white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, behind that kind of like Starbucks God. Which is essentially Christendom within, uh, you know, Christendom, um, in the most recent histories of Western Europe, um, is such like that. It's like a Starbucks. It's like a chain store, out chain at Walmart type outlet that's taken over the precedent of, um, of something that was a lo- local shop. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. And I think for Jewish people, it's really interesting because there's so much displacement within Jewish people, right? Yeah, we, had, we had the, 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 the horse-drawn cart of... Right. Yeah, so there, there's... So I think Jewish people are particularly interesting in this and how, um, you know, uh, the Abrahamic religions come out 
you know, of those traditions and stuff. But um, specifically just talking about Western Europe, there was a displacement of those local gods. And that means that it, the, in the collective consciousness, the market share of the collective consciousness changed, right? And so when we say that, like, um, there isn't oppression, it's more like, well, like, what is, you know, there's, that that's something to think about, if that makes sense. Um, well, so, so, I mean, at, at the level at which some, an individual had to yeah. give up their local mom and pop God. Yeah. Like, it's different if they keep walking and they're like, holy cow, like maybe the sun is the thing versus being conquered and and either enslaved or incorporated into a larger system in which they don't have the same agency. Right. But I mean, you know how there's I, I think I think the, the point is that like the way people usually lose their um, relationship to whatever is regional is usually through conquest Mm -hmm. of some kind, right? Like we, like, um, yeah, like these nation states are created through something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There weren't, that didn't exist before. There's like conquest and stuff that happened that allowed that to happen, right? And so there's a lot of undigested material from that. I think that we're dealing with now, which is really what I'm saying is that like, um, I'm not talking about the last 500 years, although maybe I am talking about the last 500 years, but like this is, this is a thing, you know? Um, yeah. So what are some examples of that undigested material? Uh, like insecticide, right? Like people love, you know, Japanese people love white rice, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we know that white rice is not as good for you as brown rice. Let's just put it that way. We, we know that. Let's just put that out there as like a comment. I eat white rice, but I mix some multigrain with it. That's how I deal with it. But, um, you know, brown rice is a whole grain and all that. It's wonderful. So where's the, um, where does the insecticide come in? Well, uh, brown rice was for poor people. Or, I mean, poor people didn't even get to eat rice, but brown rice is less aristocratic than white rice, right? Because white rice is like has a dopamine hit, it's sugary, it's uh, refined, right? Um, goes along well with like certain flavors and stuff like that. Uh, and brown rice was for poor people. And now brown rice is more expensive than white rice because of insecticide, right? So the insecticide is allowed for a larger population of people to indulge in like what was originally a kind of an aristocratic behavior, right? Aristocratic dietary mm-hmm. choice. But it's actually corroding people's digestion overall compared to, let's say, eating brown rice. It's like better for your microbial environment, right? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think that's like a, a pretty big nutshell of what we're dealing with right now. If you want to talk about, um, cultural trauma and history and, 
um, how we inherit it, right? It's in our lifestyle. Hmm. Right? So we're, we're dealing with all that. We're dealing with, um, yeah. So where does like, where, why did Europeans, uh, you know, consume so much sugar? You know, why did sugar become, and sugar becoming a, a uh, what was originally an aristocratic thing, becoming commonly available to the commoner? What does that serve in, as luxury, you know? And uh, think about, um, like, why, you know, and we know the sugar gives you a dopamine hit, right? Right. You know that really well. And what does that mean when you look at the history of Europe and it's just like bloodshed? I mean, it, so is Asia, but like, you know, like it's just bloodshed. The history of medieval history is just like pillaging and killing for hundreds of years. You know, like civilians being slaughtered. So what is that? People inheriting that trauma. Why would they want dopamine? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So I think, I think, I feel like you're trying to get this. You know what I mean? I'm talking about it kind of like this is a very large scaffolding in our, in, um, in our, in our lifestyle is, is, is actually mechanisms that we've created to deal with this massive, massive intergenerational trauma that's still in our collective unconscious in a huge way. So, you know that like white kid that shot up those protesters? Is he separate frames from like a, a sugary icing kind of like fluffy cake from the, from a supermarket? You know what I'm talking about? No, no. Like, you know, like, it's kind of like gross. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it's mapping onto when I work with someone who has any sort of um, either addiction or binge behavior for a particular type of food. There's yeah. there, the central challenge is always going to be: Can you feel what you're feeling that makes you yeah. want to not feel it with with this food? Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So, so the dopamine is always like: Why do you? Um, I, don't, uh, I imagine you know the work of Gabor Mate. Yeah, yeah, he's your neighbor, I guess. Right? Yeah, I've never met him. I walk, I don't know walk or anything, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly. Um, but uh-huh. like, you know, what he, what he asks addicts is like, how is this addiction good for you? Like, what is it yeah. doing for you positively? And right. so, for you know, for the individuals I work with, they they have pain in their lives, and dopamine, the quick dopamine hit that they get from junk food, is an mm-hmm. immediate self reinforcing salve. Yes, yes, yes. So you're saying that's not, so beyond the individual, there's an entire culture of pain that when sugar was available, immediately was utilized to, to address. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Okay. There's a lot of our lifestyle uh, decisions, and particularly maybe food is an interesting one to look at, is that, is a result of that kind of dealing with that, you know, imperialism worldwide. Right. And this isn't, this isn't just like white people are bad because you're like the, the, um, if you look at, you know, I've been taking more look at hard look at the history of like what we call the Middle East and then Eurasia and all that. You see, it's just a massive clusterfuck of like imperialism and people are killing each other and it's like, you know, a lot of, a lot of white people died <laughs> at the hands of people of color. <laughs> you know, like, like it's, pretty obvious right like the mongols went really far the ottomans got really far and then of course like you know the crusades you know waged in like like so 
there's a lot more than just this current conversation that we're having that we need to take account of. And of course, like what we see now are like what happens to a world when certain people have won more recently, you know what I mean? In the last 500 years or so. But um, there's a much longer history to account for, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very important for us to understand. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I think about sugar geopolitically, I think about yeah. slavery. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah, the way yeah. the way you're framing it, and and the and the story of slavery, mm-hmm. from my you know enlightened progressive perspective, is that yeah. Europeans were the bad guys and. They were at fault and they were wrong and they enslaved lots of people of color. And of course, yeah. at some level, that's true. And it also doesn't take into account what you're talking about of the, the, the trauma of individuals losing their mom and pop gods and becoming like, yeah. like there's no, there's no way to, there's, there's nowhere to stick the flag of blame. Well, in, in this. yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's harder to, I think there's responsibility. But it, it's more like, um, like you know, I, I think people tend to forget that, like, so let's say, like, you know, because I've been really paying attention to this more, like, when a land gets imperialized, often the people that are there get enslaved to become joint armies and stuff like that and have to go and fight overseas, you know what I mean, like, People are having to do things against their will for a very long time, and that that's gonna that's built up. So, like, I think it's an assumption. It, it would be very assumptive, yeah, to say it's that flat. Like, you're gonna have a lot of people, let's say, probably white people who are po- really poor who participate in the slave trade, but they didn't necessarily have a say about it. They're pretty much slaves themselves, probably. Like, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Like. Yeah, and for warlords and stuff, this is just in merchants. Like, this is how um, a lot of it's working. And so, like, there, I think there's individual responsibility, and then there's also the reality that, like, the Industrial Revolution and uh, has benefited greatly a certain type of person. And, the, you know, and, you know, it's disproportionately benefited white people. That's mm-hmm. true, you know what I mean? Um, because white people had been the winners of the last 500 years. So, yeah, so, so that so, is something. Yeah. That's that's huge. But so, it's just yeah. now, yeah. So if yeah. we look at history in terms of, okay, yeah. there was this conquest slash discovery, there was a new invention, there was a new means of production, and it's caused all this pain among mm-hmm. the losers. Are we saying that basically progress equals trauma? That like if you could if you could push a button would we go back to hunter gatherer tribes worshiping local gods? Yeah, I mean I think that's the yeah I don't think we can do that. No, this is the this gets into a lot more <laughs> complexity, but yeah, progress equals trauma. I think it's like kind of like maturation. It's and that's not to say like everything that happened is being collateral damage or anything. That's that's like not what I'm saying. It's like. Hmm. And there's a part of me that, yeah, like, I guess accepts that human history had to evolve in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I don't think our plan is to um, go back to the past or anything like that. But what we definitely need to do is have some kind of integration. So 
we're not over relying on these coping skills that we've gathered and you know and like white supremacy is a coping skill it's like a coping mechanism right privilege is a coping mechanism so can you say more about that because that that feels very theoretical to me Right, which, right, right. Which means that I'm probably, <laughs> right, right. I'm probably really good at it. Well, so you know how like you know acquiring a sugar by European powers is like a psychological coping mechanism for the collective trauma that Europeans experienced in the medieval times, right? Okay. And before that, right? Um, so following that, it's like the privilege to have sugar, to be able to eat cake. You know, following Marie Antoinette, not to eat cake, to uh-huh. being able to eat cake. This is like a, a this this is a privilege that has developed, but what that privilege allows us to do, just like how when we have like a, a dependent eating behaviors to soothe a pain that we don't perceive, it, it's very similar. Like we mm. people have comfort in their life with that we call privilege now, that allows them to um, circumvent the pain underneath. But the pain is there because it's in the digestion, it's in the it's in the body, it's an intergenerational body, it's being inherited. Right? Like all the gut dysbiosis and all the other autoimmune stuff that people experience now—that's all intergenerational trauma. So it's there. It's just we hide it very well. We we're trying to run away from it, <laughs> uh-huh. right? So, but it's catching up to us. So that that's kind of how I understand it. Gotcha. Wow. So. So what do uh, I mean? What, what, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I mean, when I see a client or someone, I might be a client who is four hundred pounds, and they've soothed themselves with sugar, with fat, with white right. flour, with all that stuff, and I can see they, you know, they might think they're jolly and happy in the life of the party, but it's clear to, it's easy for me to see the pain underneath. It's very easy for me not to judge that person, but to, and to feel compassion. And in fact, sure. one one of the things that I've gotten good at doing is I'll see people like that at like Costco or Walmart, mm-hmm. and I'll picture their healthy selves, like their sure. their best self. But when I see a group of people protesting in Charlottesville, or like in in my state, there's a whole like you know mm-hmm. right wing oh, reopen everything. Praise God, right wing. Like it's, it's very, or, you know, even worse when I hear, when I see or hear people being overtly racist. Sure. Um, I don't have the same inclination to understand them, to see their pain, to, to want to help them. And part mm-hmm. of it, I think, is on social media that if, if I even say like, oh, well, like, like the whole thing is, oh, the white kid shot up a church. He has mental problems. Black people are protesting in the streets. They're naturally violent, right? So yeah, e- even sure. to go to this idea of trauma feels like mm-hmm. in our current culture that it gets it gets fucked with. Oh, you're you're excusing that behavior, and my left wing friends won't like that. Hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think you're mentioning something pretty interesting. So I'm sitting with kind of 
how to parse it out. Because I feel like the question that you're bringing up is a lot more, um, about how are we responsible for our trauma, right? Um, I think that as I'm listening to myself, and and I so appreciate Mm -hmm. the silence that you're allowing, I feel like Mm -hmm. not editing any of it out, just because it's it's organic. What I'm really saying is like, I see myself as a healer. Sure. And I see a sick society, and there are these blockages to me being a healer. Like, like I have to, you know, like the, the desire to be right, the desire to tell other people they're wrong, the desire to avenge is completely blocking any healing that I might offer. Mm-hmm. And I know how to work with individuals when they come to me. And I don't seem to be able to access this innate healing tendency, which I feel is my gift to the world. Mm. Like, so, like something, something in the way I'm thinking about it is messed up. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's take let's take that away from you. I, th- I don't I don't know if it's something in the way that you think is messed up or anything, but like what which what I think I think yeah I think you're coming back to is that people are what are people responsible for taking care of in terms of themselves, right? Like. Um, and we have a weird relationship to trauma. Like we, I think it's reasonable for us to say that we are responsible for the trauma in our body and healing that individually. We are each responsible for that. Mm. And if that was the premise of like how our conversations change, um, because I'm, I'm going to reroute to, let's say like when you're talking about, you know, somebody who's really fat. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put it out there. I think there's a lot of complex conversations around fat shaming and um, obesity and and health and stuff. Um, And I don't know how to perfectly navigate it. But one place where I'll go to is that regardless of how we are shaped, right? This is, you could be really thin, you could be really fat, you could be really muscular, you could be really not muscular, um, whatever. Our bodies are a reflection of the relationships that we're in and how we're doing them, right? I think the, one of the problems that we have in our culture is that um, we tend to highlight certain body responses to trauma and not others. So let's say like um, being very muscular, which actually is, can be a trauma response for obvious reasons because your body's in constant flight, fight response, so you're trying to you know, armorize and all this, right? Mm. A lot of culture around hyper masculinity is that, is like applauded versus, let's say, like if your body's response to trauma is to gain weight or gain fat weight, mm. you you probably are shaming one thing and upholding the other, but they're actually, depending on looking at the person, they're both traumatic responses. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. 
And so there's no need to shame either in a way. Um, and there's also a need to maybe actually have a responsible conversation about any of those responses um, in like a very real way, in a very non-judgmental way. That's kind of like where I try to navigate. But this is this is definitely like a, um, a tough question because I, I do th- you know I do believe that some people are as much as some people are naturally muscular and healthy with that. I'm sure there's people who are naturally fat and are healthy with that. Like I know that, but that's not that doesn't mean every person is fat is having a, you know a well response to the world. And then also there's the reality that all of us are probably in some kind of traumatic response regardless of our shape. Like being very thin can be a traumatic response, right? Like it, it can, there can actually be inflammation responses and all kinds of things underneath that. So you can't, so I think there's, there's something about reorienting that conversation though, pivoting it around. Like what, what are our responsibilities for working with intergenerational trauma or the trauma in our bodies and the cultural traumas that are around us when we inherit or that we express? And how does, without any expectation, how does how does our how do we change when we get like instead of maybe like um pivoting around um the results that we're trying to aim for is to actually more work from the place of like when the when we get into a better state of well being that might be a look a little they might actually look a little bit individually different, but what happens naturally unfolding from a person being in a better state of well, like a better state of being. And I think when we center that a lot more, we have different results. And this goes into talking a bit like, um, like a, you know, a white kid who shot up and a bunch of people and, you know, there are white supremacy and stuff. And if you say it's trauma, are we coddling them? It's like, well, if you assume that we are not responsible for our trauma, I guess, saying that somebody has trauma is going to be, like, um, problematic, right? Because you're letting them off the hook. Mm-hmm. But that, that that's that's based on a social order where we're not responsible for a trauma. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's based on this assumption that we're not responsible for healing our stuff. You know, that we don't have a collective responsibility to do so. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's something a little bit I don't think it's something that you're thinking wrong. I think it's something that's actually kind of a bit fucked up about, um, of what we live in is that we don't actually, that's not actually like a foundation of how we do things is that, Oh, we actually each have a self responsibility, um, to, um, heal ourselves. And we also each have a self responsibility, a responsibility to the collective to, to support other people in doing that. Mm-hmm. Right. So this, these are the things that are like just kind of, um, I think, messed up. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know when you're talking about sort of muscular people can be just as um, trauma <laughs> informed as obese people. Right. So sure. there's there's lots of ways in which I look like a functional, healthy person mm-hmm. to the outside that are actually manifestations of trauma. I just, oh I, yeah, totally. right. I just, I just happen to have gotten lucky in that my trauma is socially applauded. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, because you have like people who are, you know, you have people who are really muscular and that's seen as healthy in this, in or something, whatever, muscular and lean, and then 
you'll actually talk to them and you're like, oh, you can't actually sense your abdominal movements. They have gut dysbiosis. They have inflammation inside. Like, but it's all armored and you can't see it, right? And you're like, well, <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, but it, we have this weird way in our, in our culture about um, privilege certain certain things and not others. So that, yeah, mm. I think that's very real, very very real. So is is the <laughs> solution or approach the the Gandhi line to just be the change, like we just work on our own shit? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think actually really practical is to work on your microbiome. I actually like to be very pragmatic about that. It's like, uh, yeah, let's work on your own shit, I guess. Like, quite literally. Work <laughs> on your digestion. Seriously. Yeah. Um, work on inflammation and microbial, uh, di- microbial environment. Uh, and you know, and, and when in regaining that, there's everything comes out of it, you know, like, uh, how you, um, because, I don't know, regaining your microbiome environment is very emotional. It's <laughs> stirring. Mm-hmm. A lot of shit comes up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's the... Uh, well, for, for me, my- I can tie my microbiome to individual childhood trauma, right? To being mm-hmm. right, c- right. C- to be cesarean birth and to being right. bo- um, formula bottle fed. Right, right. So, so like, yeah. I, think, I think of yeah, those exactly. typically as physiological, you know... Limitations right. and shortcomings, but but there of course there was also an emotional, right, right. spiritual aspect to each exactly. of those things that I missed out on. Yeah, and then there's the cultural, right? So, like why you know cesareans are often a result of um, you know people losing sensation in their in their pelvis, pelvic muscles and stuff, right, and getting constricted there. And, that has a lot to do with their lifestyle, sitting on chairs a lot. And where does that come from? Well, that comes from imperialism, you know. Same mm-hmm. with, same with um, uh, being, being grown up, growing up on formula. You know, what are the, you know, that's totally the industrial revolution behind that, right? So, you know, and the lifestyle changes that came with that, right? And that's a result of imperialism. You're gonna, you know what I mean? Like, so all those individual things you experience are actually cultural phenomenon that you're entire family network is a part of, right? right? And so when we, you know, like if you probably weren't working on your microbiome, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You know what I mean? So I think I think this is very foundational, actually. Mm. And is the idea of the microbiome being so central, uh, sort of a, like self-similarity, mm-hmm. chaos theory thing, like I, mm-hmm. I am the body, like the microbiome is all these trillions of entities and just like I'm nested, and like like this is the this is the the universe that I can take responsibility for. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, this is the microcosm that I can really try to take responsibility for and see the results of immediately. Mm. You know, and then when your microbiome changes, your posture changes. You know, and so when your posture changes, the way you interact with the world changes. And whatever body we manifest from that change is like something that we might appreciate, you know, maybe not uphold, like pedestalize, but appreciate its, its emergence as opposed to, let's say, like 
because I think a lot, you know, we tend to go for like, I don't want to be fat or, you know what I mean? Or I want to put on more muscle or like we have a destination in mind. Mm-hmm. That, so that's like the top down approach, <laughs> right? The bottom up approach would be like, well, my microbial condition inside my body sucks. <laughs> I want to fix it. And I'm going to see what happens as I fix this thing that I don't know what the effects of that are going to be. Some mm-hmm. people might gain weight. Some people might lose. You know, it's like a, a really individual. A lot of people are probably going to break up with their partners and make new friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing I read recently was that uh, our microbiomes are taking a hit in the uh, quarantining because we're huh. we're coming into contact with fewer other human organisms. Oh, the yeah, yeah. No, that's an interesting question. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that gets into like the. I think that gets into like a like a, I don't know. Is that what we want to end our conversation with today? <laughs> no, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but when you think no, about like where where the microbiome can be enriched in things like you know the dirt, yeah, right? yeah like yeah. you you had me like sensing the land. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. I'm on I'm on a you know um, a concrete slab on my office here, but I can go outside in bare feet. And walk on grass and pick up dirt and smell, you know, um, geosmins from the pines in my front yard. Yeah. Like there's, there's something about, I mean, one thing I love about that, like the microbiome can save us is that it's, in a sense, it's greater than human. Like we're, we're looking for help from something greater than the human world. Right, right. Well, you know, I, I would, you know, I'd say like those local gods, the microbiome is, is a great description of that, right? Because <laughs> we're all essentially fermenting beings, right? And then the ferments change their flavor and texture and stuff. You know, if you're a whiskey drinker, you know, what I mean? you know this, depending on where, where the land is and the, and the climate and the flora and the fauna, the flavor of the actual drink changes, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, mm-hmm. we are that. And I would argue actually with the pandemic, really, like, we're supposed, the pandemic is really supposed to be something that gives us more time to regenerate our microbiome. I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's like, to regenerate our microbiome, we require rest. We require uh, parasympathetic nervous system activation. We require rest and digest. This whole thing of like, you know, the whole thing that, we've been doing is like i'm having a cold button going into work well it's like this pandemic is basically showing how fucked up that's going to be you know what i mean so the message really is is to is to stay home and eat dirt Uh and the poverty in our in our thinking is is that we don't do that maybe is that we want to be fine again we want to be okay again Mm. but you know Yeah, yeah well that's me that's me taking a uh an aspirin to, to, to drop my fever so that my perception of illness goes away before the illness actually does. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I think, you know, COVID, COVID is a, actually a very benign illness in a lot of ways, even though, like, we're destined to survive it. Our economy may not. Mm. Or our humanity may not. Um, our economy actually needs to go with probably, you know, <laughs> with COVID. But, you know what I mean? COVID is very benign. And we're destined to survive it. Mm-hmm. You mean benign on a uh, on a global scale? Yeah, like it's not the Spanish flu and it's not the plague. We're not going to lose twenty five percent of our population year over year. You know what I mean? Like that's not what it is. Like you know, like we just have to get realistic with that. 
it's what it's doing for and um but what it does it's it prevents us from being productive but i think it's actually if you listen to it it's in a very good way you know what i mean when you have a cold you're supposed to rest just chill out do nothing unplug Mm. and we have a whole economy that doesn't allow us to do that and so that might be what kills us Mm -hmm. the economy Mm. might kill us Uh, how we've been running might be kill us like our our beliefs around who we're supposed to be might kill us but the illness is pretty benign actually really you know i want to say that in a big sense you know like of course i know people like i know people who've lost people like that that's very real but when you look at the overall landscape it's it's benign compared to what a pandemic actually generally is mm-hmm. which is like 25 to 30 percent maybe even fatality you know right and so, so the, thing, even, the, yeah, the thing the thing that is exacerbating everything in terms of human suffering is our unwillingness to respond appropriately yeah absolutely yeah i think that's a i think that's a very good way to yeah encapsulate conversation it's yeah it's our inability yeah <laughs> very much so all right. Mm-hmm. Well, I I think I think I'm starting to wrap my head around. <laughs> we can have a part two. We can have part two. Okay. Yeah, I've like traveled around quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I wonder. I hope that people got a bit of like a sense of what cultural somatics is about. It's very like it's it's like kind of like uh, what would I leave it with? Like so, at least in my approach, you know, my approach, like so. I think, generally speaking, let's say, um, you know, I'm obviously an anti-racist person. You know, I consider myself, I guess, some people would say, like, some people could say I'm an anti-racist activist. But um, my kind of thinking goes to, like, the problem of racism, for example, or misogyny or whatever, is not necessarily solved by a singular issue approach of anti-racism or anti-misogyny. That's not actually what it is. Um like a better, like a, not better, but I guess maybe I think it's better. And maybe a more whole approach, let's say, to racism might be like, oh, well, um, what does microbial restoration look like? That might actually be, it's, it's kind of like the, the problem is not necessarily entirely the solution. Like kind of like, uh, um, in the same ways that like, you know, if you have a headache, Advil isn't like the singular solution to migraine. Mm. You know what I mean? There's a whole other system of things underneath a migraine that need to be looked at, right? Probably microbial, frankly. When you get down to it, it's probably going to get back in your microbial stuff and all your pelvic muscles and all that stuff, right? That's where the migraine stuff comes from, through your spine and how your digestion system and your posture interact. So, you know, the solution to racism might not be anti-racism. Like it could be, it's like a part of it, but it's not what we, it's like, it has to include a lot more than that. Does that, does that make sense? Um, yeah, it does. Because, you know, that when I first, <laughs> when I first discovered the anti-racism work, which was about a year ago, so I'm like, I'm so proud of myself for not having been the person who, you know, s- suddenly started buying these books. Like I was like a few months early, like, yay, yay okay. me. Yeah, early, you're us. Um, majority or something like that right and and there was you know and there's a way in which um at first i totally embraced the self-flagellation yeah 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 yeah. and then i started not 
I st- you know, and then I, when I applied my coaching hat to it, like the, this idea that now Robin D'Angelo is the most popular author in America, and it's basically white people reading about how mm-hmm. assen- essentially she's like her, her solution when, when when if someone says, "Okay, I read your book, what should I do?" Her her answer is, "Well, the first question you have to ask yourself is, how come you haven't done anything up till now?" You know? <laughs> really. Yeah, I don't know. I've heard her say that four or five times on on podcasts and in, in lectures, and I'm like, boy, as a coach, that's exactly the wrong thing. That's interesting. That's interesting, right? Yeah. So to to help, um, you know, people as a coach, that would be a very cult like abusive thing to say. <laughs> oh, right? No, seriously. It yeah, I, I mean, I, have, I I just thought it would be extremely uh, unhelpful to get people. Yeah, to... I would think it is. In a coaching frame, that would be abusive. Not saying that in the she's just talking from on TV. So, but it's interesting to think about that because I think that is an abusive thing to say. Like if you know, if a client came to me and my first response is like, "Well, why haven't you come to me before?" That's you're getting into abuse. Yeah, to be honest, to be honest, an abusive dynamic. Yes, say so more. I'm not sure I totally understand that. I, I it make I, I'm agreeing with you because I think you're right, but I don't know that I, I couldn't explain it to someone else. What what is abusive about that? Well, I mean, because I, I can divorce this from like Robin being abusive. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't really care. I don't, I don't know her work well enough, so it doesn't really matter that much to me. But the the if if you as a you know as a coach, um, and a person's like, instead of being like, oh, you're here now, let's work with this present moment, you're dragging them into their past response. Mm. I would say that's abusive. Okay, gotcha. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like. I think the right answer there that's pretty obvious to me is like, well, you're here right now. How does your body sense? Let's bring you into the present moment. Mm-hmm. We're not like shooting into you. You're like, okay, well, you're responsible. Like that doesn't. Yeah. yeah. So I think you're really right. But that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I would say something like, you know, great. So what's what's different now? Yeah. 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 What's, that's totally, right. Yeah. That's, that's, um, absolutely. So given that, so you know, if white supremacy and white fragility are both responses to trauma or symptoms of trauma, then I think the other, going the other way to sort mm-hmm. of this, this white guilt mm-hmm. seems to me, in the way that I embraced it for a while, also felt like a response to trauma. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. Yeah, most of the time, people, that's that's what we go through. Yeah, some hypersensitization process that's trauma-driven, mostly because... I guess I'll just say that a lot of the people writing about this stuff are not writing from the standpoint of somebody who's well seasoned as a trauma, a person who works at trauma, right? Mm-hmm. So of course it's gonna, like, you know, like a lot of the material that's written and people consume is not trauma safe or trauma informed. I, I don't love the word trauma safe, but it's like, it's not coming from a neurological lens. Like mm-hmm. it's not coming from a somatic, it's not coming from, like the lens of what is an ethical approach to change or anything like that. That's that's not that's not what it's centered around, right? Mm-hmm. In the you know in our in our kind of works context, so that's totally yeah. I think that's totally um, reasonable. Um, I think it's our work to then be able to take in this information and be like, okay, have a little bit of of a, of a gut. Yeah. Coming back to this, have a microbial sense of wellness that we can actually filter, digest the material, and go like, I like this part. I'm not taking this in. 
I like this prank. But a lot of what happens is when uh, people are working around, they're like, you know, if you're a white person or you're a man and you're dealing with your race or gender stuff, we have a tendency to come in like, oh, this is the place where I'm really bad. So they're, you know, you're coming with a totally collapsed sense of being. Mm. And then you have no ability to digest the material on your own terms. And yeah, so that when um, I find that that can lend itself to definitely to problematic and abusive dynamics for sure, 100%. Mm. But I, I do think there is like, you know, at the same time, like, you know, you know, we have to think about it because people are making money off that too, right? Like racial justice and gender justice is a big industry now, <laughs> right? Frankly, you know, like my traffic on my website it's exploded like three to four times that before and i'm sure you know robin is really famous now and there's all lots of other people who have been doing racial justice work that i've gotten a lot more exposure and a lot more money is flowing into their coffers and you know i'm not a person who's against making money or anything like that i love it so i'm not saying that's necessarily bad or anything but it's worth like examining like how is our industry operating is it ethical what we're doing i think that's worth the conversation mm. Yeah, gotcha. and something I'm very stern about, <laughs> as you can probably see. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, like, so you know, I do believe it's up to. <clears throat> it's kind of like, you know, on my part, like, actually, when I work with white people, it's the first thing I do is like try to be like, okay, so what's your ability? I don't really care about right away whether being racist or not about X thing. Like, you're coming to me, you're probably. I'm not trying to like, I'm not going in. Why haven't you come to me before? It's like, okay, well, you're trying to do something now yeah. with your stuff. And the first thing I work on is not about what you, how do you know if you're doing something racist or not? It's not that actually the first thing I generally work on. Uh, I try to work on, and this is not a promoting myself, but maybe it is. Sorry. Maybe I'm promoting myself. Well, <laughs> uh, but, you, but you say like, I get to do that. <laughs> I, I would hope so. You, you, you okay. just get, you've just given me 80 minutes of your time. I hope you get something right, right, out right, of it. Right, right. Well, something I think is really healthy is, is actually to first build up the person's capacity to, to digest their own material and, and be responsible for their own systems in that way. You know what I mean? And not like they don't have to like ingest everything I'm saying. They don't mm-hmm. have to take everything. You know, because the first first thing often when you know people go and do anti-racist work is is figure out all the ways that they can be anti-racist, and it's like I actually find the starting place that I find more better results in is actually to first start with how do you how's your how are your family patterns involved in this? Actually, the early childhood patterns are very important, and it's like how do you respond to new information and digest it? Let's set you up with a process that you can get some embodied sense of this is good, this is bad, this is me in process, right? Because actually, if you don't have that, you can interact with anything and it can become cult-like abusive dynamic with interacting with anything. But it's also, on the other hand, if you have the ability to digest material, it doesn't have to be perfect coming in because nothing out there is really that perfect, including Mm. my work. Then you have the capacity to go. I'm going to take this part of me, uh, this work in, and then poop out the rest. Right. So the digestion part is actually like this is the whole thing. This is the whole thing I'm saying is like the solution to racism is not necessarily anti-racism. It might be just the foundation might be microbial health, and I mean that quite literally. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, what this is reminding me of is like one of the things that has bothered me mm-hmm. is like 
the way people are taking in or not taking in new information about the virus. Like it's ever ever like it's it's become yeah. <laughs> right. Like you're on this side or that side. If there's a study that suggests herd immunity in Sweden or New York, and you mention it, then you're obviously you know anti-mask and you want everyone to die. Or yeah. if you're you know, <laughs> if you if you're waiting for a vaccine because nothing else is going to get us out of lockdown, then you're yeah. anti-mask and. Like, like I'm seeing, like when you put it that way, the our our ability, our our varied abilities to digest new information. Mm-hmm. So you know, I guess sort of an intellectual, a cognitive microbiome, which must is oh, yeah. grounded in our in our physical gut microbiome. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the nervous system, right? That's literally the nervous system. Is that? Yeah, it's their, the the bridge between the physical and the kind of abstract. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it's right it's right in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's what will kill us or help us survive, you know what I mean? Or even thrive even. Like mm-hmm. it's it's and that's and I think that's a great place to end because maybe because I think that's exactly what cultural somatics to me is about. Is about seeing that like very kind of like fractal picture of the micro and the macro and the nervous system's role. Mm-hmm. And navigating these very, what we call complex planetary issues. And so right in the, all the answers are in our own nervous systems. And once we get to know the culture in our own bodies, we get to really understand how, um, how culture and larger bodies work and what we need to do to actually, um, bring our entire existence, human existence, uh, biosphere existence into better, better being. Yeah. Ooh, I love that so much. Yeah. So um, I have one one more question for you, which sure, is sure, sure. Um, I, I like to end with this with this question. Um, is there any music that you're listening to that you think people might not know about and would would be would oh, benefit, benefit from oh, from, from hearing? Oh God, music, huh? Okay, hold on. Let me open my Spotify. <laughs> um, I'm not going to play anything. I'm just going to see music. Why, why, why music? Um, I've just started, I, I, my life got better when I started asking people, tell me something you listen to that I haven't heard of. Okay, but what have you heard? Uh, oh, I mean, all sorts of, I'm, I'm learning about, um, you know, sort of French hip hop and, uh. Oh, really? Like Les Nubians? Um, Les Nubians, uh, MC Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, um, okay. I'm, I'm discovering salsa, so. Okay. You know, so basically increasing my musical microbiome. Musical microbiome. All right, right. You know, seriously, this is good. Shit, we can be forever. I, I, I'm actually like a, I used to collect records and stuff. Like, um, I'm not like a total music buff, buff, but, uh, man, there's, there's so much good shit. Okay. Um, and what do you do? Do people play it or something? I'll, I'll, I'll put I'll put a, 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 a link to a YouTube video. Oh, okay, 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 that's cool. All right. <laughs> okay, let me let me get let me let me get. Ah, uh, can I? Okay, so how, how many songs do I get? Oh, well, let's let's say three. But if you want, yeah, no, no, three is good. Three is good. Okay, <laughs> three allows me to have like a a, a, a motion. So I know the, the the middle song is Samba de Flora. Samba uh-huh. D E uh, Flora. So 
the Samba of Flowers. Okay. Erto, A-I-R-T-O. Do you oh, know Erto? I do know Erto. He had... Um... Yeah, well, whatever. You'll get that. <laughs> I, 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 last I heard of... I last record I have of his was from like 93. Oh, okay, 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 okay. So this is different. Um, yeah, Samba de Flores. You'll, you'll love it. It's, oh. it's quite a song. So, but the first song I'm trying to figure out, um, it should be like a mid-tempo song. So there's a bit of, it's like the beginning of something, right? So maybe, uh, uh, this is pretty pedestrian, but, uh, oh, oh. no, I, I, I want to send it to me later. I don't want. To, I don't want to give you homework, but I also don't want to put you on the oh, spot. Oh, this is great. Oh man, there's so many. I can have a whole playlist to be honest. Like this is what I do. Um, I'll I'll take it. Okay, okay. Ra- ra- uh, fuck. Okay. Uh, ra- Ramsey Lewis, Sun Goddess. Okay. Never. Sun it's pretty goddess. pedestrian. It's like everybody has that. But good. That's cool if you don't know it. Uh, Ramsey, so Ramsey Lewis, Sun Goddess, yeah. Okay, got it. Okay, and then like need like a, a come down song. Uh, okay, I think. Sorry, I don't know. This is I love. <laughs> I always love this. I'm, I'm loving your enthusiasm here and the and the care in which you're putting into these these three oh, songs. Oh no, I, I, this is a great. It's like a three song DJ mix, right? It's like it's like a it's like a koan, then <laughs> koan. Because ah, uh, okay, oh. Uh. <sighs> so there's a tie here. Well, there's like a three-way, actually, even maybe. Okay, sounds like we have five. We have five altogether. No, no, we can't do five because we got to do it in three because that's there's um. What's this after Samba de Flora? So it's like Ah. Oh man, that's really hard. Uh, you know, it's like I'm thinking like Donny Hathaway. Someday we'll all be free. Okay. Um, I mean, you you get to choose maybe the last one. You know what I mean? Or like, oh. Uh, because I think we, you know, we talked about, I think just with all the stuff that's going on, this, you know, in terms of racial trauma and stuff, it's just a really potent song, you know, Sunday we'll all be free. And then, uh, there's, um, but maybe that's too obvious. Maybe, oh, okay. You know, and then there's also the Roots version of, um, the Nina Simone classic. Oh, I don't know if it's Nina Simone, but uh, I, I wish I knew how to. What it, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Is that? Is, I wish I knew how. Wish I knew how. I mean, these are all very like serious subjects. Um, mm-hmm. But it actually, maybe what it's actually, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna say it's actually 
good to be subtle. And our appreciation, maybe Joe Sample. Okay. I'll go with Joe Sample. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, but at least, you know, this is all recorded on the podcast that people can listen to the song, right? Right. Um, and Joe Sample, In All My Wildest Dreams. Hmm. Do you know the song? I don't, but I love the title. Yeah, it's, um, it's the, it's the, it's the original, it's the original song that Tupac uses for, uh, Dear Mama, I think. Okay. Yeah, it's very, I think, I think this, I think it's kind of like, without going into the obvious message of our times or something, these three songs and their instrumental quality speak a lot to the, the subtle layers of what's really important. So maybe that's how I would frame it. Because they're all instrumental. Maybe that's maybe that's the thing. Okay. So right. so not not getting bogged down in the in the words. Yeah, I mean, I think the words are are valuable and important, but I think it's just in this starting out with Sun Goddess and then Samba de Flora. Because I th- I think if we're talking about you know anti-racism revolution, there's a whole Mm-hmm. Playlist we can do with like Jill Scott Heron and like, you know, like, um, you know, there's a whole, you know, you can start off with, yeah, you know, you can, there's a, yeah, we, we, there's a whole exploration of really going into protest songs and stuff that mm-hmm. we can do. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, I think we're first, I think I, yeah, I chose instrumental songs, so right. I'm gonna build well, a playlist. Well, we'll start, it. we'll start with the body. Yeah, yeah, I'll start with the body. And with, and, with pleasure, right? So if, we, if we protest mad, we're not going to be as effective, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. Like, none of the, none of the protest songs I choose would be. Well, yeah, there's, I mean. I'm going to come protest three, too. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to come back to you for, if, you, if you're willing, for another, another conversation. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm gonna put it out there. If people really want to get off, though, they can listen to uh, uh, it's uh, "Fuck the Police" by Jay Dilla. Okay. Yeah. This is that's a great, great song. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, you caught me like the thing I love. So like I, I love music. So you caught me in the right thing. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah. Talk about so I, I got that. I'll throw those on the uh, on the show notes and. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much, man. This is uh, this is such a a deep, worthwhile place for me, and I love that all of my confusion brought me back to microbiome and to digestion, to like where I'm rooted as a practitioner. So I, I appreciate the the journey that you that you took me on, and the and, <laughs> and the revelation that I'm I have tools. Awesome. No, I, I'm glad for, uh, for that revelation. Yeah, you have, we all absolutely do. And of course you do, especially as a practitioner. So yeah, thank you mm-hmm. for inviting me and uh, uh, signing off, I guess. All right. Thanks so much, Tata. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Howard. Well, I think we got somewhere in the end. There's certainly a lot for me to think about, a lot for me to chew on. I'm looking forward to more conversations like this that, that expand far beyond my original interest in this podcast in how to get people to eat more plants and really looking globally at the opportunities and the crisis of our entire civilization. 
So I uh, hope you'll join me in that journey. If you have comments, of course, please go to the podcast itself, uh, plantyourself.com slash 238. It's not 238, silly. 438. I just erased 200 episodes with a slip of the tongue. 438. Plantyourself.com slash 438. And let me know what you think in the comments. Um, so let's see what else is going on. I'm still walking in, in walking news, in limping news. My, uh, my right knee subpertellar bursitis is still bugging me. And I did jog for like a mile and then decided like that was stupid. So I, I just walked the rest, did five miles today and I'm hoping that if I keep taking care of it, it'll get better and better. And, uh, maybe by next weekend I'll be up and running again. In garden news, we have to close the bed. We have to put the, the cover cloth over it because we're going to hit freezing tonight. Um, I did a thing. I made a ramp to the lawnmower shed, um, which for most people is not really a big deal, but I never grew up doing woodworking. I got a, a C minus in shop class in, uh, in junior high school. I spent six weeks making a, a single dado joint. Um, so I was very proud of myself to nail together a frame and, and cover it with slats of wood to make this ramp for the lawnmower. And it, wor- it worked out so well that I'm going to make another one. So I may, I may have a new niche in woodworking, which is ramps. 